millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking France. Just in case you were one of our new listeners, this is a podcast about France and French news brought to you by The Local. This week, we'll look at hunting in France. Yes, the hunting season is pretty much underway across the country. And there have been renewed calls to tighten the rules around the sport, given the number of fatal accidents each year in France. We'll also discuss why skiing might be different in France this year and what you need to know about a new website launched by the French government aimed at helping to avoid power cuts this winter. We'll examine a crisis amid the French left-wing alliance and discuss Emmanuel Macron. The two Macrons, in fact. The one that struggles at home and the one who seems to excel abroad. And we'll get stuck into the French tradition of goûter. What is it exactly? I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined by the locals' journalists, Jen Mansfield in Paris and James Harrington in Toulouse. We'll also hear from our political expert John Litchfield up in Normandy. And I'm joined by Jen. Jen, thanks for joining us. Emma is away, so me, you, John and James will have to do an awful lot more talking this week. Uh, Emma will be back with us next week. Now, Jen, we always start these podcasts with some talking points in France related to the news. Start us off. What are we talking about in France this week? So we're talking about something that Ben and I know quite intimately. Uh, We're both uh, cyclists or bikers, and uh, we've definitely become a bit more accustomed to the fact that there's more biking or more cycling happening in France. Uh, So this week we're talking about how France is trying to become a cycling nation. We're not quite at the level of our near neighbors, the Dutch. Uh, France is going to be investing over 250 million euro into the Plan Vélo, or the bicycle plan, for 2023. And that's more than it's ever invested in a single year for biking before. So it's quite a big deal. And that budget is mostly going to be broken down into helping municipalities, namely those that are outside of urban areas, so suburban parts of France, develop their bike paths and parking areas. And it's kind of funny, actually, the French press keeps calling the Plan Vélo Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne's bébé, because she's the one that came up with it in 2018, back when she was the Minister uh, for Transport. And there are several other parts of the plan, so it's not just about bike lanes. Um, It's also promoting the Made in France bicycle industry. Um, Part of the goal is also to encourage biking as a preventative health measure. And there are plans to set aside some funding for the construction of bike parking at the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. Okay, now you really notice the number of cyclists in Paris these days staggering, really. It really shot up during metro rail strikes a few years ago, then even more during COVID when the metro, people avoided the metro. But now, you know, rush hour here on bikes, it's staggering. There's news reports this week about how the cycle lanes, the new cycle lanes in Paris are kind of saturated. It's a real difference to what you see when you go outside Paris where 
there just hasn't been the same investment in cycling. But one of the topics eternally in the news is regarding safety and safety for cyclists and pedestrians. Is this part of the plan, Velo, Jen? Yeah, so there isn't so much of a focus on teaching adults how to ride their bikes, which personally I would be in favor of. (laughs) Uh, But the Plan Velo does have an education campaign portion. So part of the goal is to teach primary school children across the country how to learn how to ride their bikes. Um, And that includes signaling and the rules of the road. So hopefully this next generation of bikers will be a bit more safety conscious than the current group out on the roads. Indeed, one of that current group smashed into me the other day. He went through a red light. Smashed into my back wheel, back wheel bent in two. I didn't fall off, thankfully, or have a kid on the back, but he um, he gave me 30 euros for my wheel and just cycled off. <laughs> but yeah, it is, a, it is a big issue, huge issue with the number of cyclists on the road. And Jen, there's also a, another huge talking point this week. It's a new website that the French government wants us to use uh, pretty regularly throughout the winter. Tell us more. Yeah, so this winter you might wake up and check the weather forecast, and then you might open another tab and check the energy forecast. Uh, So this week we're talking about ECOWAT, um, and this is basically France's energy weather forecasting website. It's going to provide an update each day, so it'll give you a reading of how much the French are expected to consume in terms of energy for that day and the next four days, and how that compares to the available production and import capacity. Uh, So basically, the, the most important thing that you have to remember is when you go onto this website, you're going to see a color code. If the color is green, that means that consumption can go on as normal. If the color is orange, that means that consumption is expected to be high and that the electric grid might be strained. So individuals are going to be encouraged, though not obligated, to decrease their energy usage if possible. And then if it's in the red zone, that means there's a high risk of power cuts. So these would be like two-hour rolling blackouts, as we might say in the States, or just power cuts. Um, and basically, it, it it doesn't mean that your gas is going to be shut off or anything like that. Uh, it basically just means that the electric grid is under serious stress. So localities, specific areas, not the entire grid, would have these momentary power cuts. And that might be due to really cold temperatures. Um, it might also be due to issues with the nuclear grid if uh, we're not able to get all of the nuclear fleet back on time, or if there are issues with being able to share energy with our European neighbors. And this this will show maps on a localized basis, yeah, or is it just for the whole country? We'll see in our area whether it's red, green, or or yellow. Yep. So you'll see it on a département level. So when you go onto the website, you'll see a map of the entire country, and then you'll be able to see which areas are in green, orange, or red. Uh, so like I said, it's not like the entire French electrical grid is going to shut off if there's a red zone. It, it's localized. Okay, so essentially this is something we can check to find out whether our area is at risk of a power cut. Right. And and the name of the website is, Jen, just spell it out for us. It's monecowatt.fr. So that's spelled M-O-N-E-C-O-W-A-T-T dot F-R. Are we going to get alerts? You know, am I going to be sitting here and I get an alert flash up on my phone going, you know, turn your computer off that you're at risk of a power cut or turn the washing machine off? Yeah, so you're only going to get alerts if you go onto the website and sign up, which is what the government is recommending that you do. But it's not going to tell you to turn off your computer or anything like that. The gest or, you know, the actions that you could take, they're voluntary. It's not an obligation. It's just warning you that the the electric grid is under strain and you'd get those alerts either by SMS or by email but not by app. They're on, they're constructing an app currently for EchoWatt, but um, it doesn't look like you're going to be getting notifications to your smartphone anytime soon. Okay, fine. And just remind us what the government has said about the chances of power cuts this winter. 
So they're still saying that the chances of power cuts are rare. It's not something that we're expecting to happen, but it's possible, and it's possible under certain circumstances. We were talking about the nuclear fleet, and we were also talking about power sharing. Um, but the uh, head of the French Environment Ministry, Agnès Pannier-Runacher, has said that if these cuts were to happen, they would be considered rotating load shedding. So that's the terminology for it. And that these would last a maximum of two hours per day, and it would only take place in the morning between 8 a.m. or 1 p.m. or in the evening between 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. Uh, so not during prime hours of the day. And it wouldn't impact priority sites. So we don't have to worry about the power going off at hospitals or clinics or high-risk industries. Basically, the thing that we all need to remember is these are still unlikely to happen. You don't have to worry about your gas being shut off. That And that the number one rule of thumb is that businesses and government buildings are going to be the first to be impacted by any of these energy rationing techniques. It, it will impact individuals later and it'll be on a voluntary basis. Okay, but we're all thinking about ways to save energy this winter. We've got plenty of articles and advice on our website, thelocal.fr, about how you can take steps to save energy. Thanks, Jen. Jen, we also like to talk about who has been in the news in France this week. There's been a couple of high-profile French politicians who've been in the headlines. Before we bring in John Litchfield to explain the story behind those headlines, just tell us who these figures are. Yeah, so the first person that we're talking about is Adrien Catenen. He's an MP from the far-left French party France Insoumise, uh, and he has admitted to being physically abusive toward his wife. Uh, and then there's also Julien Bayou, who's the head of the Green Party, and he has now been accused of psychologically abusing an ex-partner. So we're going to be talking uh, a bit about the French left today um, and also these figures that have been accused of, uh, of abuse. Okay, I'm going to bring in John, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John, just sum up what these accusations and claims and admissions mean for the alliance on the French left. I suppose one could say somewhat harshly that it's 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 pointed to some of the hypocrisies of the left. You know, I mean, they've been they've been they've been using the parliament since they got back there as a sort of platform for standing up and making sort of moral pronouncements and values pronouncements and shouting and screaming at anything the government wanted to do. And now some of the people who've been most uh, visible in that, especially Adrian Katanens, who's very visible because he has bright red hair, um, uh, was always at the center of all this sort of arm waving in the parliament, um, has been forced to sort of withdraw from public life. It, it has caused a nasty uh, internal fight within the left. It has embarrassed the left hugely. And I think what it's done also really is probably will be marked the beginning of the end of the domination of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the leader of the LFI, the France Insoumise, and the de facto leader of the wider Nupes coalition of the left, because he was one of those who who really was very slow to react to the, the information about Catherine And even when Catherine himself admitted to it, uh, put out a tweet more or less supporting Catherine and not even mentioning Catherine Enns' wife. And a lot of people, especially women, understandably, on the left were outraged by that. And it's never been possible, really, to criticise Mélenchon internally in his own party. It is now. John, just a bit of context for our listeners. Who do this, does this left bloc represent? There's been a lot of talk about whether they really represent the working class. Who, in your eyes, does this left bloc represent in Parliament? I would say that whoever votes for them or not, I think that the the, the impression that many people have uh, is that the left represents middle class 
quite um, pressure groups, which are often pressure groups, perfectly valid pressure groups like women's rights and, and environment and so on, more than it does the, the real interests of, of ordinary working class people. And that's been drawn attention to not just by this uh, dispute in the left, but by a couple of other quite important, interesting figures on the left. So that's an interesting debate that's beginning. How does the, the, the left reclaim working class votes? And it's a similar debate to the one that goes on in Britain. Yes. John, moving on. Another French politician who's been in the headlines this week, as always, of course, is the President Emmanuel Macron, but much so, more so on an international level, given his powerful speech in the UN and also his many tributes to the Queen Elizabeth II. John, um, Macron seems to be performing well on an international level. His status is fairly strong, but at home, he remains weak. There doesn't seem to be any link between his kind of performance or his ratings, you know, abroad. Yes, I, it's almost as if um, there are two Macrons in a way, that there is a sort of international, a, glo a global Macron who's very respected internationally for his intelligence, for his eloquence, and also uh, he angers many people internationally for that and the, uh, for some of the things, or because they say he's pretentious and arrogant, which is the same, one way of saying the same thing, if you like. I think he is, he is a... As a president, as, a, as a, a head of state, as an international figure for France, he's a very effective president um, and has been so really from the beginning. And I think some domestic criticism, criticism of France ignores that because French, many French voters like those everywhere are not very interested in what goes on abroad. They obviously want France to be seen and respected well and respected abroad, but it's not something that affects their own everyday life. I think Macron's still suffering from from his kind of failure really to grasp the the, the, the or seize the ball and run with it. After the, he won the presidential election, he went into a kind of he sort of disappeared from the scene in a way. People say that he went through a sort of a bit of a depression. Uh, he'd been burned out by everything he'd done on COVID and the and the Ukraine war and then the presidential election. And he didn't really get involved enough or direct his troops well in during the parliamentary election and therefore lost their majority, which possibly was going to happen anyway. But maybe they could have done better. And now that's left him in this very difficult position facing a five-year most of a five-year mandate without a parliamentary majority, which means that he cannot easily get stuff um, uh, enacted. And I, I think he himself, from what I understand, has not really uh, decided how to face up to all that. Should he call a new election sometime next year? Should he try and just accept that he can't get many more, many reforms through with huge consequences for, for, for the economy going forward? Or uh, should he do something dramatic? And I think he's still casting around in, in, in for a, a direction and a sense of purpose in his second term. The fact that it's his last term as well, I think is also, also affecting him. You know, he, he is in a sense a lamed up president uh, because he, everyone knows he cannot run again next time. And therefore people are beginning to turn towards the figures who might run again in his part of the battlefield in the, in the center. So all those things I think are affecting him. So you have this kind of, rather rather respected and forthright and intelligent Macron abroad, and you have a rather depressed maybe and a bit um, um, at a loss for where to move Macron at home. And let's move from Paris to another part of France. And on Talking Points this week, we're going to head down to the French 
Alps and look at the ski resorts. Now skiing, like most industries, are desperately trying to figure out how they're gonna deal with rising energy costs this winter. Some resorts have spoken out about how their bills are gonna explode this winter. And for those heading down to the Alps or booking their holidays over the winter, skiing will likely be a little different this winter. Jen, just explain a bit more. Yeah, so ski resorts are floating a bunch of different ideas for how they can respond to rising energy prices. Uh, some are considering slowing down chairlifts, so that would mean that your chairlift is going up the mountain maybe one minute slower than it normally would, uh, so maybe not the end of the world. Uh, others are considering adjusting opening hours, so starting a bit later and closing a bit earlier during the day. This would likely happen outside of peak visiting time, so not the big vacances uh, d'hiver. And other resorts are looking at shutting off the Christmas lights. So uh, no Christmas lights, that would be a bit sad. Uh, but the other option would be turning indoor pools down by a few degrees, three degrees Celsius. So I think you'd maybe notice that. Um, and, and some other ideas are asking hotels to turn off their exterior lighting. But the main way that skiers will feel the change this winter is probably going to be in terms of price. So, for example, one ski resort called Avoriez said that their daily pass is going to go up from 43 euro and 50 cents to 47 euro a day. Uh, and this seems to be the main solution that a lot of other resorts are considering as well yeah i mean i think if i head to the slopes i'm quite happy to accept another minute on a ski lift but if they start banning fondue or raclette i'll have an issue with that thank you jen now if you live in rural france or if you're a regular visitor on weekends during autumn and winter you'll have likely spotted people holding rifles wearing orange vests wandering around fields or woods or have heard the distant sound of gunshots that's the sights and sound of the local hunt. The hunting season has opened again in France, which means, unfortunately, there are likely to be stories over the coming months of serious, perhaps fatal, accidents involving hunters, as there are each year. There have been renewed calls to crack down on hunters in order to avoid the kind of tragedies that have seen joggers, gardeners, mushroom pickers and hikers shot dead in recent years, not to mention many hunters themselves. Will anything change? Why is hunting so big in France? And why has President Emmanuel Macron courted hunters in recent years? Now I'm going to bring in our journalist, James Harrington, who joins us on the line from Toulouse, who's been looking into this new report by the Senate in France. James, just tell us a bit about what this Senate report is recommending in regards to hunting. French, French senators have heeded a call of a, of a petition that was set up um, following the, the shooting of, uh, Willie, of a man called Morgan Keane in, in the lot in December 2020. He was shot dead. He was chopping wood um, and he was shot by a hunter who, appar who apparently mistook him for a boar. His friends set up this position. It's got 120,000 signatures, and the, the, which prompted a, a Senate investigation. This report has come out and it's made 30 recommendations, one of which is to ban alcohol during hunts. Uh, and limit limit the amount of drink that hunters can have. Another one, for example, was um, to have two free two hunt free days in a week. On and on the issue of alcohol, this is the issue that's kind of hit the the headlines in France this week. You know, I think if we, whenever you talk about hunting to people who know hunting, often a comment they make is, "Oh, they're always drunk." You know, no wonder there's so many accidents. But what is it they've suggested about alcohol? Is it just a kind of an outright ban? And you know, is there a problem of alcohol in French hunting? Well, currently there is no limit on drinking before and during hunting, um, but alcohol is considered an aggravating factor 
in the event of a prosecution following an following an incident or an accident. Hunting groups have reacted angrily. They say that in 91% of uh, cases of following incidents, uh, alcohol has been found not to be a factor. But what the Senate wants to do, what campaigners want, is for blood alcohol levels to be, and, and even narcotic levels as well, blood and narcotic levels, to be treated in the same way as drink and drug driving. Yes. Now, look, to me, you know, and perhaps you, it feels like quite a normal policy to kind of restrict alcohol to people who are holding guns, given the number of, of accidents, you know, most of which affect hunters themselves. But hunters and hunters groups have reacted quite angrily to this suggestion. What's been their reaction? Can you sum it up? Yeah, well, I mean, in fairness, in fairness to them, a lot of a lot of hunting groups have already set up schemes where where they, they put it into their laws, into their local laws, that the practice of hunting is forbidden under the influence of a narcotics or alcohol. So they've, they've put it down in their, for among their local hunters that that, that can't happen. But they, they've said things like, we're being treated like uh, being passed off as assassins and being caricatured on things that are not true. They, they insist that on the whole, alcohol is not an issue. Uh, Willie Shren, the president of the National Federation of Hunters, even went so far as to say, you know, a drunk guy on a bike is dangerous too, which doesn't seem to hold really much water. Interesting, yeah. Hunters groups are not happy with the kind of coverage in the media this week. Thanks, James. And now I'm going to bring in Jen. Jen, you've been looking at some of the history of these uh, tragic accidents uh, that explains why hunting is so controversial in France. It's not just the animal cruelty angles. There has been some pretty horrid stories over the years of uh, people being shot and injured who had nothing to do with the hunt. Tell us more. Yes, so every year there is some high-profile accident um, that often involves a passerby being killed uh, by hunters, and it sparks up the conversation about hunting in France again. So every year around 20 people are killed in hunting accidents in France, although I will note that most of the casualties, over 90% are from hunting, are, are actual hunters themselves. Uh, there was a really horrible story um, out from Aldesh about a 61-year-old hunter who accidentally killed his son after mistaking him to be a boar. So uh, these are these are equally tragic. Um, but the, the controversy usually talks about passerbys, the jogger or the mushroom picker who's killed by a stray bullet. And, and I can get into a few of these pretty horrific cases. Uh, one involved a walker who was just out for a stroll in the southern Haute-Savoie region. Another was a driver in his 70s who was just driving outside of Rennes in Brittany, and both of these people were badly wounded. Um, but in terms of deaths, earlier this year, just this year, there was a 25-year-old hiker who died after being shot in a hunting accident. One of the really high-profile ones that happened in 2018 that some of our listeners might already be familiar with uh, was the death of Mark Sutton. Uh, he was a 34-year-old Briton. Uh, he lived in the Alps region, and he was fatally injured while he was out on a bike ride in the Alps. Uh, and it turned into quite an investigation because he was actually shot in a broad clearing, so he ought to have been visible to the hunters in the area. Um, and that led to a big outcry from people in that small town of Montreal. Uh, over 1,000 people joined a Facebook group uh, hoping to reform the hunting laws in France. But these these incidents, they happen every year, and, and every year they start this conversation back up again. Indeed. And, you know, the hunting season is, as we've said, is underway. And, you know, we do uh, see these headlines from around the local papers around France of accidents each year. Now, one thing we like to do at the local is ask readers and listeners about their experiences of a particular aspect of life in France. Now, we're in Paris and we don't often 
come across hunters obviously armed with rifles. So we asked readers and listeners in rural France what it's like living through the hunting season and their responses were quite an eye-opener to us. Although for those who live in the countryside, they're probably not too surprised. But just to give you an example, an American reader, Ken, uh, who lives in the Londe department of Southwest France said, my experience here in the Southwest during hunting season is that this is more of the Wild West than anywhere I've ever lived or visited in the US. During hunting season, we do not ever go out for walks, hikes or bike rides. The hunters in our area constantly coming within more than 150 metres of our home, on our property and cracking off shots at the game they are hunting. Uh, Julia in the Vaucluse in the south of France said, I grew up learning how not to go outdoors during hunting season, making sure to wear brightly coloured clothes and pretty much being terrified of getting shot during those times because it was something that sadly happens very regularly. Finally, Claire in the Dordogne told us, we are live and let live types, but we have experienced blind shots being fired scarily close towards our buildings, hounds in the garden on two separate occasions. One was left behind howling through the night just about every weekend and some weekdays from September to February. Their convoys of four by fours and minivans tearing up and down our lane and through our small commune where there's poor visibility and dangerous corners. Now, Jen, that's just a, a few of the examples from our readers. We should stress, however, hunting in France is not a free for all. There are some rules that need to be observed, some strict rules, in fact. Yeah, so hunters are supposed to wear reflective clothing when they go out. There are supposed to be signs on the roads anywhere that a chasse is going on. Chasse is the French word for hunting um, or a hunt. Um, And you can't just hunt whatever you want either. The game that's allowed to be hunted in your area is decided by your local authorities and sometimes the day of, so you have to check with your département. And usually that has to do with protecting specific species for population control reasons. Uh, But I think the most important thing worth noting is that you can't just pick up a gun and go hunting. You have to have a permit. It's called a permis de chasse in French. Um, And in order to get that, you have to have passed a theoretical and a practical exam. You have to be at least 16 years old and you cannot have any criminal offenses that would stop you from having the right to bear arms in France. And what about some tips for readers to stay safe and stay out of harm's way? Yeah, so, well, one of the first tips is is actually downloading an app on your phone. Uh, so there are smartphone apps that exist for non-hunters. Uh, one is called Melchon, uh, and it was launched in 2018. And basically this app allows users to see whether there's a hunting party going on nearby. Uh, so if you're biking or walking or riding in the area, you can check that app and just see if there's, there's anything in, in your nearby area so you can pay extra attention. Uh, and then the other tip, and probably one of the most... Uh, intelligent ones would be to know the hunting calendar. Uh, Be aware of when hunting could be happening in your local area because it's staggered, so it's not the same across France. You you just want to know that calendar so you can be extra aware when you're outdoors. And Again, keep an eye out for the signs that say la chasse. Uh, they're supposed to be displayed prominently in the area where hunters are, but in reality, sometimes they're small or they're half hidden. Um, so the main piece of advice is if you're going outside, if you're going for your walk, avoid venturing into the unmarked parts of the forest. Stay on the marked paths, wear bright clothes, uh, like one of our readers mentioned. Um, and if you hear a gunshot nearby, don't hide, don't go into the brush, stay on the path or stay in a clearing area so that the hunters could easily see you and they won't mistake you for an animal. Thanks, Jen. Now I'm going to bring in John Litchfield, who lives part of the year up in rural France, knows hunting very well, to help us understand why is hunting so important in France and why has President Emmanuel Macron courted hunters, voters in the past? And will anything change? 
to us, it seems quite a normal thing to ban people holding guns from, from drinking. But hunting is, is such a sensitive issue in France. Why is it so important in rural France? And why do presidents like Macron court the, the vote of, of hunters and, and people around hunting in the country? You know, it's just, this is something that kind of baffles me a little, because as you say, I live in fairly uh, deep countryside most of the time in Normandy, and no one around here hunts, practically no one that's local hunts. My next door neighbour occasionally takes out his ancient rifle and has a shot at a pheasant that he's reared himself, uh, but doesn't even do that every Sunday now. But the people who do come in and in, in hunt when the hunting season starts, which it does soon, I think, in here, hunt wild boar, hunt deer, hunt pheasants, hunt whatever they can, are people from the kind of what people, the sort of uh, peripheral areas of the uh, local towns like Caen. They're not fully rural people. They're people who live in, in the suburbs and or the outer suburbs of those towns, small villages on the edges of those towns. And I think hunting is their idea of being out in the countryside, having fun as other people might go walking or cycling. That's their way of going into the countryside. They're not people from the countryside for the most part. And I think that's misunderstood often by French politicians, the idea that somehow hunting is a core value of rural people. It may be true in other parts of France more than here, I'm not sure, but I have that impression that the real, the real demography of the hunting population is something else. It's kind of the Gilijon population, if you like, people who live on the edge of big towns, who, who are kind of provincial, not quite rural, not quite urban, uh, who feel a bit sort of abandoned for other reasons. And therefore, hunting is, is a kind of something Macron's right to reach out has been very much a pro-hunting president, strangely, really, if you if you look at where he is in almost other, every other issue. He has bent over backwards to be very pro-hunting, which he's criticised for by many people within his own own part of the political spectrum. Yeah, I and mean, every year when the hunting season starts, you get all these kind of ideas that hunting should be clamped down on, drinks should be stopped. And there are, unfortunately, it doesn't actually go up very much, but every year there are terrible accidents where hunters shoot each other or they hunt, shoot cyclists or shoot people walking in the forest. Those numbers go up and down a little bit. They aren't increasing hugely, but they're pretty bad in themselves. Can you imagine Macron ever really banning hunting on Sundays as, you know, opponents suggest or or any future government? Can, will will it ever be cracked down on, given these accidents? I, I don't think it'll, it'll happen under Macron, though, uh, for the reasons I've said. Possibly in the future. I, I think a lot more could be done by the hunters themselves, I think, to... to and they have. I mean, when I used to first live out here 20, 20 years or so ago, there was a kind of aggressive attitude they had towards anyone that wasn't a hunter. And they didn't wear the sort of day-glow, sort of gilet jaune, gilet orange, orange vest they do now. They didn't put up signs saying that they were hunting. They were extremely unpleasant if you tried to walk through areas where they were hunting. That has changed. I think they, they have been forced to recognise that they don't own the forest, they don't own the countryside in the brief periods where they're there, and they do have to respect the, the, the other people's rights to enjoy the countryside. So there has been a shift, and I think there has, the shifts have to come within from within the hunting community. I don't see it actually being um, possible to get a legislation through Parliament on it very easily, no. And it's time for our reader question about France. And just a reminder to readers, if you have any questions about France you'd like us to explain with the help of experts, just email us at news at the Now, one comment foreigners often make about the French and their eating habits is that they don't seem to snack between meals. Well, at least not as much as in Anglophone countries. However, that's not quite true because the French have built up a huge tradition 
around the afternoon snack. Yes, we're talking about le goûter. And to help us answer the reader question, what is le goûter and why is it so important in France? I'm going to bring in James Harrington again down in Toulouse. You've been writing about goûter for the local France this week. Just tell us, what is it? Is it just unabashed French snacking in the afternoon? <laughs> uh the French, the French take their food very seriously, so it's not a huge surprise that they've invented a, a time to eat it. Le gute is 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 actually a noun form of the verb to taste, and it is a cultural tradition that, that dates back at least to the 19th century. There are, there's talk about it going as far back as the Renaissance, allowing for the fact, obviously, that you know people snack all the time and have done from, since time immemorial. But what it refers to is a very particular time of day around 4 p.m just at school kicking out time so that and um, it means that children get something to eat to tide them over until the meal the evening meal which is, is normally later than most sort of anglophone people are, are used to and it's not the healthiest of, of snack is it let's be honest no no goodness no it's it's always it's it tends to be something sweet you can possibly get away with fruit if you're particularly healthy but we're, we're, we're talking you know biscuits cake yeah. Pain chocolat or cho- chocolatina, best say, because I'm in Toulouse. Pain croissant or even a slice of bread slathered in Nutella. Yes, indeed. I mean, I always find it quite surprising the kind of things that emerge in uh, goûter time, you know, for, with parents who are kind of, you know, I know that they're <laughs> health conscious and they get their kids to eat as much fruit and veg as possible. But then when it comes to goûter, you know, the chocolate plastic wrap crepes come out and, you know, chocolate biscuits. It's like anything goes as long as it's between 4 and 4.30, you know, it's just, you know, have fun, do what you want, eat as many calories as you can to get you through the <laughs> time. Exactly, exactly so. I mean, uh, and to be honest, I mean, the, the the idea is that adults, adults with their iron will, iron grown up will, don't don't join in this this free for all on food. But to be honest, to be honest, who who doesn't want a, a pan chocolate at uh, four o'clock? Indeed. Thanks, James. Jen, you've looked after some French children in the past. Do you remember goûter time? Yeah, so in my years as a as a French nanny, <laughs> goûter was definitely a very important part of the day. It was always at the end of the school day when you're bringing the kids back home, and it's sort of a free for all. Like it's it's not the fancy stuff from from the boulangerie. It's not like a nice pain au chocolat or a croissant. It's like the store bought chocolate bars or Nutella stuffed chocolate things and it's kind of uh, what I would call crap in the US but <laughs> kids can just sort of eat whatever junk food they want and it's not like savory junk food it's usually the sweet stuff the chocolates and whatnot yeah it is definitely junk food thank you Jen now just before we wrap up this week's episode we're going to look at some French vocab as we always do and in the news well not just this week but all the time at the moment is the cost of living crisis. And we have an article on our website this week that looks and explains some of the vocab you need to know to really understand the cost of living crisis in France. It's not just pouvoir d'achat, a purchasing power. There's many other words and expressions. Jen, you've picked out a couple. Fire away. Yeah, so my first one is geste. You might remember this from COVID times uh, when you were told to respect the geste barrière. Uh, geste is basically a behavior or an action that you can take. And in the sense of the energy stuff or in the sense of inflation, uh, these might be eco-geste. So maybe taking a shorter shower, turning the lights off, being more aware of your consumption habits. Uh, so a geste, it's it's kind of like the English word gesture, but it's more symbolic and it's, it's more of just a behavior or an action that you're doing 
Okay, yeah, I um, picked out Les Plus Modestes, which is a kind of a, a false friend. Les Plus Modestes, it obviously doesn't mean the most modest, uh, as you might think in English. It actually talks about the poorer uh, section of the French population, the most likely to find it hardest to cope with the rising prices. And also a word that we see a lot is foyer, which is basically household in France. You know, we talk a lot about the efforts that need to be made by Les Foyers and how prices and uh, gas bills will affect F-O-Y-E-R-S Le foyer Jen one more from you yes so my last one is the one that you're probably hearing all the time and that's sobriété énergétique or energy sobriety, uh, but it's not sobriety in the same sense that we talk about in English, doesn't have to do with alcohol. Um, it's basically the French government's plan to decrease energy consumption by 10%. Uh, so despite the bouclier or the energy check, businesses and individuals are being warned to ease up on their energy usage, and that's being energy sober. The bouclier that you mentioned there, the bouclier tarifaire, which comes up a lot, is a basically a tariff or price shield that protects consumers in France from all those rising energy prices. Thanks, Jen. Thanks to John, of course, and thanks to James Harrington, who joined us from Toulouse this week. Uh, that's the end of the episode, and thanks to all of you for listening. <laughs>